everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is the incomparable Yeardley Smith, the voice of the most amazing cartoon of all time, Lisa Simpson. Yeardley is not just the voice of Lisa Simpson. Yeardley co-hosts and produces the hit true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks, alongside identical twin detectives, Dan and Dave. They recently announced the addition of acclaimed cold case investigator, Paul Holes, as their fourth chair for season 11. Small Town Dicks follows big-time crime in Small Town, USA, with all cases told by the detectives who investigated them. Geardley also co-founded Paperclip Limited Production Company. Paperclip Limited recently optioned the rights to Tom Wood's forensic science bestseller, Ruxton, the first modern murder to develop into an unscripted podcast and limited scripted series. In this episode, we talk about Geardley's evolution as an actress to someone primarily known for their voice, to how she is paving the way for so much creativity, owning a production company, having a YouTube channel, co-producing a podcast, and so much more. Take a listen. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a huge honor. I'm a great big fan of yours. Oh my gosh, that's crazy you say that. I grew up listening to you as an avid Simpson watcher, so to when your team reached out, I was like, hell yeah, I'll have her on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love what you're doing on this podcast. You know that you get these remarkable stories from uh, women we've heard of, women we've not heard as much of, but all of them have sort of walked through the fire and come out on the other side. And I think those stories are always inspirational and aspirational, and I'm grateful to you for doing it. Yeah, I think we all have this view, at least most of the women I talk to, that, you know, it's all going to be easy or there'll be certain parts that are easy. And I think, you know, encountering hardship and building our dreams and careers is always like, oh, man, I never thought this was going to be this fucking hard. But sometimes (laughs) it is. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So true. So, yes. So I would love to... You know, I feel like the Tracy Ullman show is like ground zero for so many incredible, talented people. I also grew up watching that, even though I was probably too young for me to really understand what the show was about. So I'd love to hear about your time there and then how you sort of made the jump and your time as Lisa and what that's been like. I... Actually, by the time, so the Tracy Ullman show started in 1986, and I had already been a pretty successful actress for four years, which doesn't seem that long, but I packed a lot in in that short amount of time, and I was new to Los Angeles, and James L. Brooks, who was was co-creator of the Tracy Ullman show with Tracy, decided he wanted to do these little cartoon bumpers, we call them the bumpers, before ad breaks on that show. And, and he was a fan of Matt Groening, who had a cartoon in these alternative newspapers called Life in Hell. And originally, Jim Brooks wanted Life in Hell. And then Matt was like, yeah, no, you can't have that. Because if this goes under, then now I have nothing. So <laughs> he created uh, a family called the Simpsons based on his own family. And I actually wasn't on the Tracy Ullman show as an on-camera actor. I was just called in to read for Lisa Simpson and it was kind of it's kind of a great 
sort of being discovered in the drugstore like Lana Turner kind of story. I had been doing a, a little play, a new play um, at a small black box theater here in Los Angeles called the Fountain Theater. And, you know, the theater scene in Los Angeles is very, very different than the one in L.A. It's There are a lot of theaters, but we just have never been able to to have the kind of um, robust kind of audience participation and getting people into those spaces the way they've been able to do in New York. So it, oftentimes you're performing to a lot of empty, empty seats. And that was true in this new play. I was playing a girl who wanted to join the army and sang Elvis Presley songs. <laughs> <laughs> and her name was Wilma. And it was a great part. And it was such a fun play called Living on Salvation Street. And I would say like 17 people saw that play. But one of those people would cast The Simpsons on The Tracy Ullman Show a year later. And so when that came about, the casting director was Bonnie Pietala. And she said, I know who should play Lisa Simpson. And so they brought me in. I also read for the part of Bart, but it's sort of now it's sort of become this urban legend. We're like, oh my God, Yardley, you almost got Bart. I'm like, no, 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 no. I did not almost get Bart. Uh, it sounded way too much like a girl. Um, it was obviously not a fit right out of the gate. So, but they always have women do the voices of young boys because our voices don't change. So it was a little more like every woman who comes through the door, we're going to have them read for Bart. Or any of the other, you know, Bart. Although at that time, Bart didn't really have any friends because we were a pretty contained little family. So um, then they handed me a, a sketch of Lisa. And, I, you know, I'd never done voiceover before. And I didn't actually want to do voiceover. It wasn't that I was wholly opposed to it. I just had a really specific plan for world domination. And voiceover was not a part of it. And I really believe that a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was teased so mercilessly for having this funny, high, nasally voice when I was a kid. And I just thought, how could that possibly be an asset? I need to do everything I can to, to normalize it, to make myself sound more like an adult. And, um, but then I, but they told me she was a younger sister. I'm a younger sister of a brother who's a year older than me. And I was like, okay. And so I, I gave it a shot. And then, it was back in the day before cell phones or anything, so I didn't hear anything for a couple of days. And they said, why don't you come back and read for Matt Groening? And I did. And I remember my audition when I went in the first time. It was so long ago that the audition was on one of those tape recorders where you had to press, press play and record the buttons, you know, it's one of those yeah. little yeah. rectangular boxes. So uh, I read for Matt and he, I remember he didn't laugh and I was like, oh, okay, well, that that didn't go very well, did it? Um, so I was really surprised when they said, you got the job, and, and they described the job to me. You're going to do these little bumpers on this show, this sketch comedy show. It's going to be before the commercial breaks. And I just, I was like, the what? You What? Uh, okay, listen, just tell me where to show up, and I'll show up, and I will load into this character. So... That was how it all started. And, and then when the Tracy Ullman show was canceled after two seasons, The Simpsons spun off into Half Hour. And nobody, nobody, nobody in town, in this show business town that I live in, thought The Simpsons would be a success. And it hit so big right out of the gate, it took really everyone by surprise. And it sort of took, it really put, helped put 
Fox network on the map because everybody also thought that network was going to go under in another year or so. So it was uh, an extraordinary time. This would have been 1990 when the when the bulk of the we were mid season replacement. So that would have been January 1990, and we did 13 episodes, and and the public couldn't get enough. So and yet and yet, Rebecca, I still it wasn't that I didn't like the job. I I just had really attached to an outcome, and this was not part of how I was going to get to that place of this sort of global stardom and all this sort of adulation that I had pictured since the time I was about six. And therein lies the massive stumbling block and, and really a source of tremendous grief later on when my on-camera career started to really fizzle, which was probably about 12 years after I started. So I was I was still so young. I mean, I'm 58 now, still pretty young, but I was, I think I was like 33 or so when things, 30 years old, when things started to go really slow down for me on camera. And I, I could not make sense of it. And I was devastated. And then, and the problem when you feel like you're operating from a place of this is my last chance, you know, a place of scarcity ever, no matter what the situation is, you, you cannot not seem desperate. And so I'm sure that I walked into those rooms where I used to just, even, even as I would, I would get nervous. I was, you know, this wasn't easy for me, but I always say I had this overabundance of courage. I'm sort of afraid of everything, but I just sort of managed to overcome it for those, for that period of time. And I stopped being able to do that. And part of the, I think one of the artifacts of having so much success so young and not having any acting lessons and not going to, not having any real mentors. Um, I always feel like I, I had built a house with no foundation so that when those things, those opportunities stopped showing up in the form of auditions, because I was rarely just offered a role. Um, now I had this huge identity crisis because I had attached my whole identity to what I do to my success. And now my success was, in my mind, was faltering. And, um, and then I didn't know who I was. And I really, it, it was, a, it was, it wasn't like, oh, and then like two years later, I fucking got my shit together and went on with it. I'd say it was like, a, it was a good decade. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear you share this because I went through a version of that. I've watched my husband go through that, you know, when I, when I transitioned out of managing a design, you know, 18 designers day to day, launching the podcast, launching my nonprofit. And I was like, who am I if I didn't decide the thread color? And if I didn't pick, <laughs> if I didn't pick the hardware and if I, you know, can I say I yes. designed this bag? And I felt like I went through this total identity crisis for many months. And I now even still have to justify it. Like, as I just did, like, and so I'm so glad you bring that up because that was my next question is, you know, your identity became synonymous with this incredible character. And here you have incredible what looks like from the outside success, but inside you're like, wait, I wanted to be on camera. What, the, yes. what happened here? So what got you to a place of, I don't want to say being okay, or you celebrate it now? Like what got you over the hump or maybe didn't? Um. 
It was really, you know, so there was about 10 years when I was trying to figure out why am I not getting any on-camera work. Now I'm not even getting the auditions, or if I get an audition, it's for one page and the character is called, you know, uh, secretary. And so I, I really, of course, you think it's you, and I couldn't... I didn't know what to do. And at that time, I would say it was, I think it was many things. I think the business was changing. I think a lot of movie stars who in the past would never touch television were like, oh, hell yeah, let's do television, especially with the streamers coming online. Um, and then, you know, if I was the person who usually played the best friend of the lead, now the lead was having to play the best friend because they got, you know, some big schmoo to come in from the movie side to star in their television show. And so now I was the friend of the friend and then people stopped having friends of friends. And then I was like, oh shit. So, um, and people were becoming multi-hyphenates. It was best if you wanted to be uh, an actor, writer, producer, or, and I was like, I don't want to do that. I just want to be an actor. That's the thing I'm good at. That's the thing I really love. So uh, to my detriment, I think I, I dug my heels in and thought I'm just going to try to work this thing that I know how to work with, without really having any idea or real guidance in how to kind of change direction or bring something else on board because I think I felt like, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to produce a movie or a TV show, or I don't know how to call people up and say, Hey, I want to do this thing. Can you help me do that? Like that was just not part of my upbringing. You know, we were very sort of pull up your socks and get on with it. Um, don't let people see you sweat, you know, don't ask for help that sort of thing. So it wasn't part of my DNA. And then finally, finally, I had had a great agent for 22 years, and then I, I fired him when things, I just had not gotten any work. I still had The Simpsons. Thank God, thank God. So in the background, to answer your question, I had this phenomenal job. But because, again, it wasn't on my list of how I was going to achieve the the this global success, it really, really didn't count. And it wasn't that I didn't love my character and I wasn't grateful for the show. It was that I was so attached, like I said, to this very specific path that I absolutely missed the journey. And I was attached to a destination. So I missed so much along the way, like literally don't remember it. And that is probably my only regret was that I was so focused on what's not yet done that I was unable right. to enjoy what was actually happening. And, you know, it was re only recently, probably in the last five years that I really made peace with, I always loved Lisa Simpson, but I made peace with what an extraordinary impact that character has on our culture for people, for everyone who's ever felt like they don't belong. And for me to be a part of the creation of that little girl is an enormous privilege. I know. I think it takes that bird's eye view sometimes to go, okay, it wasn't what I thought it would be, but the impacts that were created are far more far reaching and, and more impactful than maybe if we just, if I just had stayed in the back or you, you had, you know, she's so much bigger than me. And so in many ways it was, you know, I think it's, 
I, I think it was just hubris in some ways. I just thought it wasn't that I thought I was bigger than Lisa Simpson. It was really that I thought there has to be more. Really? More than Lisa Simpson? Like Lisa Simpson <laughs> is the best thing there ever is. So I was like, okay, Yardley. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. I, I feel you. I feel you hard. So then you really doubled down though with with launching this true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. Um, and you said, fuck it. I'm using my voice for this. I'm so curious. What led you to true crime? <laughs> and what led you to co-produce, co-host it? Uh, it seems like such a different path. It um, Actually, after I've fired my agent, then I couldn't get another agent because (laughs) everybody was like, well, you just do The Simpsons, right? I'm like, well, it's a lot of what I do, but I have done quite a bit of other stuff. Like, yeah, we're going to get that Simpsons money. You're going to participate in that. I'm like, not right away. And they're like, yeah, sorry. So I didn't have an agent for three years. And it was kind of great because I thought, well, now now what do I do? So I actually ended up taking a writing class with a woman who lived like right around the corner from me. And out of that, um, it, it was weekly and you show up with, you know, having written something. And uh, I got a, a novel out of it, which was published by HarperCollins. And that was incredibly validating and empowering. Like I didn't have to rely on 55 other random people who I've never met before to give me an opportunity. I just, you know, as an actor, you, you, there are a lot of things that are out of your control when, in terms of actually landing that job. And so this was a really, it was really amazing. And it, and it was, the book was a commercial failure, but a critical success. And I, I still think it's, it's a great book. It's, it was the book that I wanted to write. It's called I Lorelei. And um, it's about a 12-year-old girl who, it's her diary, basically. She's writing letters to her recently deceased cat named Mud. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty good, I think, if I do say so myself. And so that was a real revelation. And then I went from there to uh, deciding that I wanted to have a shoe line, which, Rebecca, you'll understand, like, the shoe, the shoe business is a fucking racket, let me tell you. <laughs> It was like, oh, oh. So I did that for five years. Um, Had a great time. We made the shoes in Italy. Had a business partner that I met at a management company. Um, But after five years, I realized, oh, this is an uphill struggle that is, is no longer fun. I'm like, I don't mind trudging uphill as long as there's there's laughter along the way and it sort of had stopped being that. So my partner and I, Ben, pivoted and he said, let's do a production company. Let's have a development company where our mottos are no assholes allowed and we will be the first to say yes because it's so hard to get a yes in this business. And so that's what Paperclip is. And um, we're about almost 10 years old now nine years old, I guess. And uh, out of, so the great story about the true crime was I was a last minute replacement at a, a Simpsons 
event, the, this town, uh, Springfield, one of the many Springfields in the country, had painted a mural on the side of a building. They had gone through Fox. Fox said, great, well, you'll pay for it. We'll design it. And then maybe somebody from the show can come and unveil it. And it was supposed to be our showrunner, this man named Al Jean, who was going to go. And at last minute, he couldn't go. And they came to me and said, Yardley, you want to go? And I'm like, no. And they said, oh, God, <laughs> please, somebody has to go. And I said, okay, what's the deal? And they said, well, really small town, blah, blah, blah. You have to fly in on a Sunday, but the thing's on a Monday. And I said, okay, all right. What kind of security do you have? Because I just thought, if there's only one flight a day into this town, everybody will know when I'm coming. And, and you know, anybody in the public eye, we've all gotten some creepy mail. And so they're like, oh, uh, hold, please. And they come back and then they say, we are going to assign you a plainclothes detective from the Springfield Police Department. And I was like, great. And that man's name was Detective Dan. And so... Detective Dan and I, it wasn't like fireworks because I'd already been married twice at that time and I was certainly not looking. I'd been divorced for six years by the time I met Dan from my second husband. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm done. It's fine. Um, and Dan was, he's 10 years younger than me, but he has an identical twin brother, also a detective at the same PD. And they both had decided that they were just going to you know, do their police career, then get their pensions and go live at a cabin somewhere and fish and golf and do whatever <laughs> twin boys do. So he was not looking either, but we hit it off. And uh, after over the, while I would continue to go visit Dan in his small town, because he's now 800 miles away, uh, I would sit on the couch and Dave, his twin brother, would come over and they would just talk about their Wednesday and it was jaw-dropping. And so uh, three years into dating Dan, the idea for a podcast came up and I said, it has to come from the two of you. It can't, I don't want you to tell me the stories and then just because I'm the more well-known person, I will regurgitate what you told me. You tell the stories and then I will ask the clarifying questions. And that's how Small Town Dicks came about. And then they started to rally all their coworkers because all of the cases are told by detectives who investigated them. So um, it's a really wonderful, very personal, unique point of view, but you get a lot more on television, but less on the podcast side of how an investigation has to come together, how all those dominoes need to line up perfectly in order for justice to be served. So um, I'm really proud of it. And we're about to drop season 11 September 30th. Wow. It's pretty incredible. You know, when I when I first launched my podcast, I signed with a, a company I won't name, and they were just getting into true crime, and I was just beginning to be a subject. And they just thought, oh, she has 900,000 followers. We don't need to have a marketing plan. It'll be fine. Yeah. And they, they sold in a bunch of ads thinking we'd get 30,000 downloads on the first episode. <laughs> and I think yeah. I got three. And then I was like, guys, I've never done this before. <laughs> like, I, was there a marketing plan? They're like, no, we thought like X percent of your Instagram followers would whatever. And then they launched their true crime. And it was hit after hit after hit. And I was like, clearly I'm in the wrong arena. <laughs> and obviously I've built up the podcast way more than that. But it continues to amaze me how much 
appetite there is for true, true crime and so many different angles. So I'd love, you know, to hear from you, like how you've made your own voice distinct amidst so many different versions of this. It's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, again, when, so when we started in the fall of 2017, you really didn't have any true, true crime podcasts that were coming from the detectives who were there. You had a lot of people sort of reading Wikipedia and giving you their opinion of or um, sort of here's what I've gathered from over the internet. And if you had the time, you could do the same. So I think one of the things that was instantly appealing about Small Town Dicks was you got, uh, so was that you got this very personal view of how these investigations came came to be. Also, these were crimes, this was big time crime happening in small town USA. So they were also not the crimes that have been rehashed, the notorious ones, you know, the Dahmers and the Ted Bundys and the Green River Killers. It was, these were equally uh, as depraved and um, horrific as those crimes that happen in big cities, but just with this, with somewhat less frequency. And one of the artifacts of being a small town detective is that you wear so many hats. So you go to a, a welfare check where somebody says, I haven't heard from my mother in three days. Can you go, you know, check on her at her home? They go to the home. They realize somebody's in the house. Oh, what's that? Oh my God, that's the barrel of a gun. Now they go back to the trunk of their car. They get out their SWAT gear and now it's a SWAT call. Um, and you're, and there, and there's like five people on the SWAT team, not like here in Los Angeles where there's, you know, 40 guys waiting for the next thing, the next crisis that needs to be handled. Um, and the pool of detectives, for instance, in Dan and Dave's jurisdiction is nine people. Uh, we talked to some detectives in other, even smaller towns where they're literally two detectives in the whole department. So it's just a very, um, it's a different kind of equation, and yet you're supposed to produce the same high level of work product that a big city does, just with many fewer resources. And the true crime audience is 75% plus female. And there's a lot of speculation about that. Like, why is that true? And I think... That was my next question. Why do we like that? <laughs> Right. I think because often women are the victims 99% of the time. And I think there's a little bit of there, but for the grace of God, go I. I think that in general, as a, as a culture, as a society, we want the good guys to win. And even though there's a really important conversation going on about policing in the United States, by and large, you still want to have somebody on the other end of that 911 call who can come and put the train back on the tracks if something awful is happening in your home, at your school, wherever it is you are, right? And the police are, the, are, that, are that. They're that agency. And so I think there's room, definitely room for both sides of the conversation. Um, but I can tell you that the detectives that we've spoken to all consider it a calling, and the ones who consider it a job are probably not in the right job. It's fascinating. So you're on season 11. You guys have an incredible listenership. I read over a million downloads a month, which is fucking amazing. <laughs> it's pretty um, fun. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So what has been one of your favorite 
I don't want to give it away because we want everyone to go listen, but what is your favorite episode thus far? If you had to pick one. That's like when people ask me, what's your favorite Simpsons episode? I'm like, I I am probably (laughs) right. (laughs) A a running list of like 10. Um, I guess right off the top of my head, we did an episode of, I think it was about three seasons ago called Kill Cullen End of Watch. Um, end of watch kill Cullen two four one and it's the story of and we actually on our podcast ninety percent of the time so Dan and Dave just go by Detective Dan and Detective Dave and we never actually have said the town that they worked in they're both retired now and most of our detectives because they're still working still go by their they just go by their first name and we say just say in our state in our town and really that's to protect the victims because we change those names as well. Um, but once in a while, in a really important or well-known case, we will tell you uh, where it all went down. And there's in this episode, End of Watch, there is an officer that is uh, murdered. Detective Dan was first on the scene and tried to provide life-saving um, CPR. The officer, whose name is Chris Kilcullen, uh, actually dies at the hospital and then there, the chase is on for the woman. It's actually a woman who shot him as he was going to pull her over for erratic driving. And he, she just reached out the window and shot him. He was a motorcycle cop. And so, and now she's fleeing and she goes miles and miles and miles up into the hills of this town. And then there's a negotiation for about three or four hours that Detective Dave is mostly in charge of, and we spoke to the widow of the officer. We spoke to his co-workers because he worked for a neighbor, neighboring agency from Dan and Dave. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about it is how vulnerable everybody was in speaking about this day and the ripple effect that it still has. You know, when Dan talks about it, he still gets emotional and gets choked up. And I am so, for me, I think vulnerability is everything. It is the greatest, most extraordinary show of courage. And also, I think it's sort of the way to happiness. Um, if If you allow yourself to be vulnerable, that in many ways, it will unburden you. Not that you should be vulnerable with, you know, the guy at 7-Eleven. You should pick your people. But there is no, there's nothing to be gained from bottling it all up, which law enforcement is encouraged to do. So to have them all be so open about this and share exactly how, what it felt like, what they smelled, what they saw, what they felt, I thought was incredibly brave and incredibly generous. I can't wait to listen to it. I've been on the hunt for new podcasts, so count me in. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so one thing I love to ask all my guests and sort of looking at different facets of them that maybe people don't get to see or hear is what would we be surprised to know about you? Uh, <laughs> let's see. I, I, I work out to uh, 80s hair metal. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love a good uh, '80s hair metal ballad. Can't get enough of that. Um, let's see. I'm I'm a I'm a good knitter. I'm not fast, but I'm I'm pretty proficient. 
Um, I don't think it's certainly no secret that also on the darker side, I had a, an eating disorder for 25 years. And I remember somebody once said to me, good God, Yardley, 25 years. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a quitter. Listen, what's your problem? <laughs> when um, you do something, you do it really well. <laughs> you know, all in, Rebecca, all in. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, how did you, how did you stop? Uh, I was coming up on my 39th birthday, and I had been in therapy, still in therapy for years, like years. And what, but I'm, you know, when you have an addiction like that, any addiction, <clears throat> I'm assuming, since that, that was sort of my, that was my addiction of preference, um, you, until you really surrender, you will do a lot of things to keep doing it. So even in therapy, I would just lie by omission. I would just not speak about it. And it would, there were times in my 20s and 30s when it was absolutely ravaging me. And it was fun, interesting. I was bulimic and I was not ever at my skinniest. I, because I would binge and I would purge, but, I, you know, I was not really, I, I don't think I was an expert purger. Like I had to, binge on certain foods that would come up easily, not to be too graphic. So, but also the body at that time, I think it processed so many calories. Anyway, long story short, I was not skinny. And, um, so on my 39th birthday, coming up on my 39th birthday, I thought I cannot keep doing this. I do not want to turn 40 and still binging and puking my guts out. So I said to my therapist at the time, I said, I need help. I need something else because this isn't enough. And so I went to, there was an outpatient program for eating disorders at UCLA. It met eight hours a week, basically two four-hour sessions. It was essentially group therapy, but one of the things that we had to do also in the midst of those sessions was we all had to have a meal together. It was in the evening, so we had to have dinner together. You'd bring your own food. And of course, for people with eating disorders, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or you suffer from both, um, it was, I mean, it's harrowing. Eating is a very private ritual. You you to this day I don't do lunch interviews because I don't like to eat in front of strangers. You know, it's not that I won't go to a restaurant and there are other people there, but I don't want to sit down across from you if I've never met you and have a meal. Mm-hmm. So it's very, you know, obviously that's the sort of a lot of the ritual of it. It's it's how you consume your food, whether it's food that's good for you or or not, um, is feels private and shameful to share, and you don't want anybody being a witness to that. So that was one of the challenges. And one of the other challenges was, because eating disorders are often um, really create a an enormous um, sort of, uh, what am I trying to say, like a uh, you're incredibly isolated. It's very, again, like you don't throw up with your friend. At least I didn't. Um, It was very private. So we had to do something social once a week, which was like nails on a chalkboard for all of us. We were like, ah, you're kidding. Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) the worst. So one of the things though, ironically, was um, one of the girls happened to be all women when I was there for 13 months. Um, 
one of the women said, okay, I'm going to go take a, a knitting lesson. Who will go? And you had to commit to something social before you left the room on that. It was Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before, so at the end of Thursday, you had to say, this is what I will do. You also had to keep a journal of how your eating went, not necessarily what you ate, just how did you do? And um, so I said, I'll go. I'll go knit with you. So we went to this knitting store and uh, learned to knit, and she didn't take to it, but I did, and I still knit. So <laughs> it was win-win that day. <laughs> well, hats off to you for beating that and and coming, you know, to a point of strength on it, and for sharing that with me. Frankly, well, not just me, lots and lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say too, though, you know, so I went for thirteen months, and then I the reason I stopped was. I felt like I really have all of the tools I need in my box, um, and now it's just up to me to use them. I don't feel like it's not that you can't can't continue to learn, but I was like, I'm I, I have what I need. It's my job to implement it, and so. But it took another, I would say, at least year and a half for things to truly stabilize. It wasn't like, okay, well, I left that group and then I was good for like the last, uh, you know, however old I am, 17 years. No, one like that. I would go, you know, the periods between binging and purging just got much, much longer. So, and then I had to really work on if I did have an episode, if something upset me and I, that was the first thing I I decided this was as how I was going to sort of equalize that uncomfortable feeling in my body of when I was particularly stressed or felt like, uh, you know, felt like I was nothing or um, was having a real episode of no self-esteem. If I decided that I binged and purged to try to equalize, to numb that out, really, then I had to also learn to forgive myself for doing that and realize that it wasn't necessarily a sign that I was going to go back to the way things were when I was 28. And so it was all really, it was a constant process. And I think I think it's one of those things because food is something you need every day. It's It's unlike alcohol, and not to say that one addiction is worse than the other, but you can't actually live without alcohol. You cannot actually live without food. Yeah. So I had to really reframe my relationship with food, all food, and not look at it like it was this huge, looming enemy um, that was out to get me. I was like, it's just food. It's just food. It's going to be all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult so. it's a difficult thing to navigate, I think for women especially with whatever is programmed into us from a young age about body yeah. perfection and you know like this is very minor compared to what you go through but I always go, "Oh my gosh, I'm so fat," right? And then Same. I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant right now and I go, "Oh, my <gasps> God, I wasn't fat. Now I'm fat." And then I'll look back <laughs> I'll say in a couple months, being I wasn't even that big. And I was like, you know what? This is so fucked up that we do this to ourselves. And so... Um, it's so fucked up. And I so get it. You know, the body dysmorphia and the perfectionism, it really is the perfect lethal combination for a measure of self-destructive uh, behavior that you you can't even put words to. I so get it. God, yeah. I get it. 
Yeah, it's, uh, I, I go, you know what? No one ever shamed me growing. Where did this come from? You know, and then it's like, right. oh, it came from the models and Barbies. I'm like, I didn't really think the Barbies were real. I don't think I, you know. <laughs> so, right. And yet. And yet, y- here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Thinking we're fat when we're not. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my Lord. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and for your tips and and how you overcame it. I think that's helpful for many people listening. Sure. Last question before you share all the links and handles is what is a piece of advice that you would like to pass on, whether you learned it the hard way or someone gave it to you and actually you're like, that was good. I'm going to note that one down. Let's see. Well, a couple come to mind. Always be on time. Your time is not more valuable than anybody else's. And, uh, you know, even if you're at the top of the call sheet and on a film or something, don't be late. You got 150 crew members who got there long ahead of you and they're waiting for you to do your thing too. It's collaboration. And, uh, I would say there's always room at the top, even if you think, and I still think sometimes like, ugh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I could ever, um, if you think of say somebody like, Reese Witherspoon, right? She's got the book club and she has the clothing line and she's a massive producer and she seems to do it so easily and and she just does it. And you think, even as successful as I am, I think, could I ever get to to that? Could I ever get to that? And I and some days I think I don't I don't know. I don't but but if somebody else was asking me, could I ever get to that? The answer would be absolutely 100%. Don't ever think for a second that you can't. I love that. It's just that sometimes there's a separate set of rules for us, you know. <laughs> of course, always in every arena. Right. <laughs> Another podcast. fucked up, fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> the real podcast I want to hope would get host would get me canceled if I were to really tell you about the fashion industry. So uh. <laughs> I bet, but maybe one day we get to hear that because that yes. would be because also at the end of the day, I feel like if if there are horror stories like that, much like the the reckoning with you know, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement and wherever you, what you know, even, I just think those things needed to come out. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was, there had to have been this feeling like, well, even if you, your little secretary go off and tell the big boss that, you know, I groped you in the hallway, nobody's going to believe you. That sort of, that shit, that had to stop. And so if there's, if there's like black tar, gunky miasma uh, in the fashion industry, it really feels like that ought to be exposed just because I feel like there are a lot of vulnerable people who are subject to the worst of that. And that never feels good. No, for sure. I I think what happens, well, happens. Yes. It's an interesting women to women, but it's not necessarily sexual, right? It's just, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just like, you will never be the one, let me keep you down, which is a fascinating thing that I learned like, oh, I just thought this was man versus woman. In my world, it's woman versus woman. So that's interesting. Yeah. Another, another topic for another day. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much. Where can everyone listen to you? 
support you by that critical success of a book. All the things. <laughs> oh, you're so lovely. Um, sadly, the the I Lorelei from Harper Collins children's books is is although a novel uh, is no longer in print. So um, I don't know where you find that, but. I'm on socials, although I've really sort of slacked off on my socials. I've, I just sort of, I don't know, lost the wind of my sails there. But I, but once in a while, I do post at Yardley Smith on Twitter and at Yardley underscore Smith on, um, Instagram. I don't have a Facebook, but I will say last year I was hosting my own cooking show that I called Oil and Water. And then I, it sort of morphed into a cooking show called Stupid Good, where I cook in my own kitchen. The videos are like seven minutes long. They're really pretty funny. I'm a good cook, but not everything always goes right. So if you go back to my Instagram, you can find that. Um, and Small Town Dicks has a great, you can find it on YouTube, actually, at Small Town Dicks, Instagram at Small Town Dicks. At Small Town Dicks podcast, listen. If you get as far as Small Town Dicks, you'll it'll fill in the rest for you. Same on Twitter, and then you can listen everywhere you get your podcasts. So, and it's really, I think, you know, I'm very proud of it. I feel like it's ultimately so incredibly respectful towards the victims, and we actually also have a, a new series um, coming called The Briefing Room, also hosted by Dan and Dave, and I, I'm there as well, where um, they talk about all things law enforcement. So, you know, because of this discussion about policing in the United States, they really uncover a lot of the, the sort of guardrails that law enforcement has to operate within in order to do the job right. And so we talk about case law, we talk about how to protect your home, how to keep your kids safe online, because Detective Dave used to investigate sex crimes and child abuse. So he used to give this pre presentation to community centers and schools about all the apps that you don't know your children have on their phone. Um, that one has been really, people have just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, so that's coming in January. And we have a fourth co-host this season 11, the one and only Paul Holes, who is one of the um, investigators who broke the Golden State Killer case using a revolutionary technique uh, in DNA. So uh, that's really fantastic. He's a, a lovely man, and he brings a, he's a cold case investigator, retired, and he's, his background is forensics. And so he brings an extra excellent um, point of view to every case that we cover this season. I can't wait. I usually work out and listen to podcasts, so uh, I'll be listening. Thank you so much, Yardley. Thanks, Rebecca. Such a pleasure. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again and you will hear from me next week.